please turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, the third chapter, beginning with verse 19. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 19. Those of you who are visitors, this is our 24th in a series on the book of Galatians, and this week we come to a subject that is very dear to my heart, and I suppose a little autobiographical note would be appropriate at the beginning of this particular sermon. I have been raised, along with my wife, in the heart of evangelicalism. And you might say, what is evangelicalism? And I would characterize it to you as the movement uh, that has been through the centuries, but particularly in the 20th century, that has a very high view of Scripture. It's the evangelical world that has given us the Chicago Statement on biblical inerrancy, that we hold that the Word of God, not just in what it teaches, but in every single word, is inspired by God, that the words in the original manuscripts, in the original Greek and Hebrew, are absolutely true. Um, And that if there is a clash between the Word of God and science, uh, the social sciences, the hard sciences, whatever it is, that we always stand on the Word of God, because God can't lie. We believe that when Jesus lived among us, that his attitude towards this Bible was rigid, rigidly committed to its truth. That time after time, Jesus used in parallel construction the words it says, referring to scripture, and God says, and he says. And that Jesus didn't make a distinction between what the Bible said and what his father said. And so evangelicals hold to a high view of Scripture. Evangelicals also hold to the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, a forensic view of salvation, of justification. And that means that we don't believe Jesus was sent here to earth to show us what a good moral life was, but rather that Jesus came to himself take the place that we deserved on the cross, paying for our sins. And that that righteousness that he took to the cross, his divinity was what provided for us salvation. That it's not as we look to him that slowly love for him will change us and we will become good enough to enter heaven, but that we will never be good enough to enter heaven. And as we look to him, we in faith are given by him his righteousness, his sacrifice in our behalf. Now, I could go on and mention a number of other things that are critical for the evangelical movement, but I'll stop with those two. The evangelical movement has been defined in the 20th century with men like uh, Billy Graham, Donald Gray Barnhouse, Harold John Auchengay, with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, with Campus Crusade and Bill Bright, with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, with Christianity Today and Eternity, with uh, Fuller Seminary, although it has since left the fold, I would say, uh, Gordon-Conwell Trinity, Asbury uh, College and Seminary, and I could go and name a number of colleges, Wheaton College. In fact, I would say that if, uh, if evangelicalism is a movement of the people of God, similar to the people of God in Egypt at the time of Moses, evangelicalism's land of Goshen would be Wheaton. It would be the single place where most evangelicals went to college, the leaders had their home, all right? And my wife and I come from Wheaton, and my father was in publishing, and my wife's father was in publishing, and my dad helped start InterVarsity, and Mary Lee's father started Tindale House, and they all went to Wheaton, and it's all a warm, big, happy family. 
Sometimes some of the elders, if the truth were known, one of the elders, and if the name were known, it would be Tim Wagner, (laughs) have looked at me and said, you know, sort of, what on earth are we referring to our church as an evangelical church for? And the answer is that no matter how far evangelicalism has moved away from a high view of Scripture, and it has, I will not give in. Because this is a heritage that goes back centuries. And evangelicalism, as it was started, was a movement that honored God. It was absolutely not anti-intellectual. It was absolutely not proud. It was unashamed of being called fundamentalist at the last part of the last, at the first part of the last century. My father used to say when people who were cool and trendy were complaining that no one was making a distinction between evangelical and fundamentalist. Uh, my father used to say evangelicals were fundamentalists. When I was in the PCUSA and I had all these liberal pastors who'd look at me as a specimen to go on a slide, um, and they would say, uh, well, you're an evangelical. I'd say, no, it would help you to think of me not as an evangelical, but as a fundamentalist. And so... This is the worldview, and it is a biblical worldview. This is not something that is a movement of men. It is a movement of God. Those who believe that we must be born again by the Spirit of God, that we are born again by faith in the foreign righteousness of Jesus Christ, all right? and that the Word of God is the Word of God, not the Word of men. All right? Now, I tell you all that so you understand that I am a bit defensive about evangelicalism. It still is a word that we use to define our church. If you want the best short summary of why it is that I love the word evangelical, get Martin Lloyd-Jones' little book called What is an Evangelical? It's only about that tall and that wide and about that thick. And it's, it's easy reading, and it will give you a picture of what we mean when we say evangelical. This is, a, this is a commitment that we share all across the ages with biblical Christians. But I will tell you that the evangelical movement, as all movements, has had some serious sickness and disease that has been at its heart. And I could name some diseases, and I think probably most of us would agree I would say that probably the largest single disease of the 20th century evangelical movement has been the absence of any doctrine of the church. Evangelicals got tired of the church and went out and were entrepreneurs, and they started businesses. And those businesses, they always made non-profit. So Tyndale House is owned by a foundation, and when Mary Lee's father dies, all the, the money of Tyndale House doesn't go to any of it to the family. It all goes to a foundation which has been doing Bible translation around the world, which helped Jim Dobson get a start and get him on the radio. It's done all kinds of good things. But remember, it's a business. Campus Crusade for Christ is a business. It's a huge one. It's nonprofit, but it's a business. Christianity Today is a business. Zondervan Publishing House is a business. As a matter of fact, your Bible translations are businesses. All right? You understand what I'm saying? And some would even argue that the Bibles that we have have planned obsolescence in them because that's good for business. And so we update them every 10, every 20 years because then everybody that has an NIV has to throw it out and get a new one. All right. Jesus, though, did not start businesses. Jesus 
gave us the church. And evangelicalism has been very, very faulty in not honoring the church and not seeing the church as the center of God's plan. Now, am I saying that there shouldn't be Christian businesses? No, I, I don't know what to say about that. I'm very thankful that there have been movements which have sought to evangelize the college campuses around the world. Nevertheless, the doctrine of the church is something that I don't think my father thought about hardly at all. And my father, I think, was one of the more thoughtful evangelical leaders. I know that Mary Lee's father has thought about it very little. And so that's one thing. But now here we're going to move into the next thing. And this is what comes out of our text this morning. Evangelicalism has been largely infiltrated by a movement called dispensationalism. And dispensationalism has many, many different uh, uh, parts, many different aspects, many different movements within the movement, just as evangelicalism does. In its worst expression, dispensationalism has tended to give all of us what we all have naturally, and that is a despising for the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament and a clinging to the New Testament and the God of the New Testament. In fact, I would say this. I would say naturally, most people that have spent any time in the evangelical world have a tendency to be Marcionites. And Marcion was a heretic in the second century, uh, and I'll get more into him later. We tend to not understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We tend to make too radical of a distinction between the two. We tend to think all kinds of thoughts that are wrong, that, that, let me put it this way, that wrongly divide the word of truth. Now, that means you have a tendency to think wrongly about this. And so my job is not a small one because some of you would self-consciously identify yourselves as dispensationalists. Some of you would say that your mother and father or the, the pastor that that was used by God to bring you to the Lord, was a dispensationalist. Some of you would say that the preachers you love best are dispensationalists. Some of you would remind me that the predecessor to Jim Boyce at 10th Presbyterian, Donald Gray Barnhouse, was a dispensationalist. And I would say, yes, I plead guilty, it's all true. Nevertheless, to the degree that all of us have been influenced by dispensationalists, and to the degree that there is a part of dispensationalism that is wrong on the nature of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you, this morning, need to hear the next few weeks of sermons. Because we get here at the heart of this conflict between what is the place of the law of God and what is the place of the gospel. Now, you know, if you've been here for a number of weeks, that we have spent a lot of time dealing with the question of the place of the law and the place of grace. And that consistently, the Apostle Paul's argument up until now, consistently has been what? It has consistently been, you will not ever be saved by the law of God. You will not ever be saved by works. You must turn to grace you must realize that Jesus Christ has done it and that you can't. And so it is fair to sum up the argument of Galatians till this point as being an argument that whoops up on the law of God. It trounces it. You might even say that it walks it underfoot. 
All right. And so it is natural that the Apostle Paul stops precisely at this point and begins a new section with a statement that all of us naturally as evangelicals and dispensationalists ask, which is what? Well, we see it in verse 19. Why then the law? Or why the law then? All right. It is the natural question to ask as we get to the 19th verse of the third chapter, having had 18 verses of the third chapter, and having had chapter 1 and chapter 2, the natural place we're dumped is why the law then? Galatians 3, 19 to 24, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Again, there is a question that all of us say, yeah, that's, that's what I wonder. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. And this is God's word, and it is eternally true. Now let me start with an analogy. Chainsaws are dangerous. Chainsaws are dangerous. In fact, if we were to compare the damage chainsaws do to other known dangers, such as riding in a car without a seat belt, it's hard to justify our continuing to allow men to buy and use chainsaws. Why does the law say that a cop can stop me on the road to see if I have a seat belt on and give me a ticket if I don't? But any man is allowed to go down and buy a McCullough and go out and, and, and kill himself. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And if you argue that we can't just let every tree grow, that the land would be overrun and turned into a jungle, and that every other means of cutting trees down is so much less efficient that we must allow chainsaws to continue to be used, you know what the moral crusader will say to you. The moral crusader will say to you that there's some good things that must be given up in order to prevent greater evils. That... It doesn't matter if you believe that having children is at the center of God's purposes for your marriage and you want to have ten, that having, what is it, two to six-year-olds or four to eight-year-olds in their own car seats uh, overrules your ability to use a minivan. You're going to have to go to a 15-passenger van. All right? And we think of all the rules that the law is making about our lives, those of us who refer to it as the nanny state, and we say, why is it that seatbelts are so important but chainsaws aren't. Compare the relative danger. All right? They would say, do you want to be heartless and continue to allow terrible pain and suffering knowing you could have done something to stop it? Or are you willing to grab the bull by the horns and outlaw chainsaws? Now, Mike's 
settle down, steady as she goes. <laughs> I thought about you the whole time I was writing this out with your chainsaw. All right, I'm done. Now, I'm not really arguing that we outlaw chainsaws. And so what does this discussion have to do with Galatians 3? Well, as chainsaws are dangerous, so God's law is dangerous. Used improperly without taking proper precautions, chainsaws can and do wound and maim and kill. Similarly, the law of God is dangerous. Used improperly without proper precautions, God's law can be an instrument that destroys souls. And this damage lasts not just for this life, but for eternity. It was the wrong use of God's law that was harming the souls of the Galatian church. Wicked men had entered that church seeking to lead souls to hell by telling them that it was their obedience of God's law that really must be the final step of their salvation. And that without that obedience, they could never be found acceptable in the sight of a holy God. And if anyone is inclined to think this was a minor error, a minor doctrinal difference between the Apostle Paul and other men of the church, look at Paul's words and feel their weight. Turn back to Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Excuse me. And there we see this, Galatians 1, 8 and 9. He's in the midst of the argument and he says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. He's in the middle of this consideration of, on the one hand, the gospel of obedience to the law of circumcision. On the other hand, the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ and his work and grace. And he says, look, you've got a choice in front of you. If even we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And as so often is the case, um, the language is, is feminized here. And it would be much better, those of us that live in the real world, to say, damn him. That's what Paul's saying. So this is no small thing. The, the danger that the law of God has to the soul's of men and women is a very great danger. It was a grave danger. It was a danger that caused the Apostle Paul to resist Peter, the Apostle Peter, the leader of the church, to his face publicly. And this theme of the danger of the law of God to those souls who use it for the purpose of earning their way into heaven is constant in the New Testament, particularly in the books of Romans and Galatians. In fact, Given the grave danger, it would be easy to understand how someone might come to the conclusion that the law of God has completely lost its usefulness in the New Testament age. If this aspect of God's word caused so much confusion in the early church, not to mention the church today, and if there are so many statements in the New Testament pointing to Jesus Christ being what? Being the end of the law. Aren't we here dealing with an Old Testament, New Testament thing? Now, enter into this. Don't defend yourself from it, but enter into it. Because I think this is what a lot of us think. Isn't it just simply that before Jesus came here to earth, God revealed his hard, law-giving, holy, and just side, demanding that he be feared more than love, and that his people earn their way into heaven by following his law? And we'd say, well, yes, except take out the word earn. 
Because we know you can't earn your way. But still, isn't that how we think? But now a new way of salvation has been revealed that starts with God coming to earth in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And this new way is a much softer, a much kindler and gentler way. With love at its center and grace, the new path to salvation. I mean, after all, this is the position that the Jews thought the Apostle Paul held. Because we read that when he went back to Jerusalem, having been warned that bad things awaited him there, he gets to the temple, he gets to the courts of the temple, and what is he accused of by the Jewish leaders there? Well, this is what they say to him. The men opposing Paul in the temple area, Acts 21:28, were, we were told, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people. What? And the law. Against our people and the law and this place. Now, this is the position that the second century heretic Marcion held. He wrote of the harsh and unloving God of the Old Testament who cared only about justice and gave no thought to mercy. And then the God of the New Testament, our Lord Jesus Christ. But, you know, what's interesting is he didn't speak just of the God of the New Testament. He really spoke of the God of the Apostle Paul. In fact, let me read a summary of Marcion's teaching from a scholar. He says, Marcion's view was in some respects even more moderate than the judgment of some of our modern thinkers. He was willing to admit that the Yahweh of the Old Testament was just. With great acumen, he arranged the sayings and doings ascribed to the God of the Old Testament by the writers and compilers and editors of the heterogeneous books of the Old Testament collection in parallel columns, so to say, with the sayings and teachings of the Christ. So he, he took who, Jesus, who the God of the Old Testament was and he did a descriptive column, right? And then he did who the God of the New Testament was and he did a descriptive column. And the whole purpose was to show how what was here at the top was opposed to what was here. And what was here in second place was what was opposed, what was here in second place. He said what was opposite to the sayings and teachings of Christ. He had a series of antitheses which brought out in startling fashion the fact that though the best of the former might be ascribed to the idea of a just God, that all this column was foreign to the ideal of a good God preached by Jesus Christ. The Christ had preached a universal doctrine, a new revelation of the good God, the Father over all. And those who tried to graft on this new good God onto Old Testament Judaism, this column from the God of the Old Testament, what he called the imperfect creed of one small nation, all right, were in grievous error and had totally misunderstood the teaching of the Christ. The Christ was not the Messiah promised to the Jews. That Messiah was to be an earthly king, was intended for the Jews alone and had not yet come. Therefore, the false historical, in order that it might be filled school, fulfilled school, had adulterated and garbled the original sayings of the Lord, the universal glad tidings, by the unintelligent and erroneous errors they had woven into their collection of the teachings. So he said that every time in the New Testament you had 
the authors of Scripture saying, thus it was fulfilled. Think of all the times in Matthew, thus it was fulfilled, thus it was fulfilled. And he said, no. He said, what they're trying to do in the New Testament is make some continuity between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. You can't have continuity. The two are absolutely poles apart. They're both gods. They both must be honored. But the God of the Old Testament is honored by fear. The God of the New Testament is honored by love. And so don't try to say they're the same God. All those texts that say, thus it was fulfilled, it's a bunch of bunk. They're trying to compress two things together that can never harmonize. Like taking the two poles of of a magnet and trying to shove them together, you can't do it. The only way to do it is maybe uh, using a vice grip. All right, you can't do it. They're just mutually antithetical. As to history, actual history, then Marcion started with whom? Who do you think he started with? He started with the Apostle Paul. He was the first, said Marcion, who really understood the mission of the Christ. And he had rescued the teaching from Jewish sectarianism. Of the many versions of the Gospel, he had the Pauline version of the Gospel alone. He rejected every other tradition of the Gospel, including the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John. He tried to save Luke. All right? The Gospel according to Luke, the follower of Paul, he also rejected, regarding it as a recension to suit the views of the Judaizing party. His Gospel was presumably the collection of sayings in use among, what? The Pauline churches of his day. Now, let me ask you a question. If you've grown up in evangelicalism or you know something about it, what is it absolutely certain that your sermon Sunday morning will come from? Absolutely certain that they will come from the epistles of the Apostle Paul. If you ask, as I did one time, that you do a series of sermons on the woe sayings of Jesus to the Pharisees during, the month, during Lent, and you have a dear, dear brother, he's worshipped with us here, who was a pastor, uh, and you suggest that, he says, no, but the woe sayings are not for us today. They were for that time, but they do not apply to us. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. You go across heaven and earth to win a single convert, and then you turn him into twice the son of hell that you are yourselves. Isn't it convenient that that has nothing to do with us? Now, I'm being sarcastic, because I think sometimes we have to look in our hearts and see our sin. And we have to say, you know, that would be very nice to never have to go through self-examination according to the woe sayings of the Gospel of Matthew. (laughs) Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you tithe your mint and cumin and neglect the weightier matters of the law. You hypocrites. Well, that's a passage of of Scripture that I can do without. Right? Come on, smile. Come on. Some of you wake up. (laughs) I get to say that. (laughs) So think about this. Um, You take certain texts in Scripture... And you say, well, you know, they're not entirely as dignified as other texts of Scripture. In fact, the whole Old Testament. I mean, come on. You go to the Old Testament and you see where God tells the Israelites to go into the Promised Land and wipe out the men and the women and the children and the animals. And Stephen Davis, in his book called Inerrancy or Infallibility or vice versa, talking about the doctrine of inspiration where he rejects the inspiration of Scripture while still trying to say that he holds to it somewhat. At the center of the book, what do you think is there? It is the conquest of Canaan. And he finally says, you know, ask me this. Ask me this. 
Can I believe that the God who told the Israelites to go into the land of Canaan and wipe all the living creatures out and take over all the land and all the crops and all the trees that are already planted for their own, all the cities that already exist for their own, can you, are you asking me to believe that this account in the Old Testament is the nature of the God that I serve? I will not agree with that. All this is, is an overwrought and unself-aware and nasty version of what we know today as nationalism. In other words, again, with Marcion, that tiny Jewish nation that made the mistake of seeing their destiny as being the destiny of the people of God. And when they thought that God had told them to go into the promised land and wipe everybody out, they were mistaken, and it's a common mistake. All right? And so today, there are many, many ways that we can get out of listening to Scripture. We can get out of listening to Scripture by being liberals and saying that it's the concepts beneath the text that are inspired, but not the text itself. And we make our peace with uh, evolution. We might call ourselves theistic evolutionists, but, but you know what I'm saying. We can make our peace with Scripture by saying that Scripture doesn't really condemn homosexuality per se, but that it only condemns the oppressive older men using younger men in such a way that younger men don't have a choice. Okay? We can make our peace with Scripture by claiming that Scripture is a book that needs the dogmatic authority and wisdom of the church in order to be understood. And so, like the Roman Catholics, you go to Rome to get the proper interpretation, but whatever happens, don't put it in the hands of the people. Okay? But guess what, people? You can be an evangelical, and you can make your peace with Scripture by declaring that the Old Testament is done. In fact, even the Gospels, where it's talking to the Pharisees at the time, is done. And now all we really need to know are the New Testament epistles. And really, do you really need to know James? (laughs) I mean, James is kind of nasty. So Luther threw that out for a time. And so really, it gets back to being Marcionites, where... You go Sunday after Sunday, and all you ever heard here preached is the Gospel of Paul. Okay? Now, brothers and sisters, because you hold to inerrancy, and because you went forward at a Billy Graham meeting, and because it's Dallas Seminary that has taught you to throw out large parts of Scripture, doesn't make you any better than a liberal. If you end up not sitting under the authority of God's Word, if you end up making yourself superior to large parts of the text of Scripture and think you don't have to come under their conviction, how do you differ from those who say that homosexual practice is fine as long as it's not the oppression of an unequal uh, pair of, of men? How do you differ from the person who says that when the Bible says that the Word of God is inspired, God-breathed, by the Holy Spirit. And yet, what it's talking about is the concepts under the words, but not the words themselves. How do you differ from them? In other words, everyone has a theological system that can allow them to whoop up on Scripture. Now you say, okay, Tim, but look to yourself first. I say, okay, fine. If you ask me to choose between the texts of the book of Hebrews, which warn that if you trample on the blood of Christ, 
there remains no forgiveness for you, and that I'm supposed to choose between that and the Reformed doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or of God's kind preservation of the saints, and that I must choose between the two, I'll say to you, I won't do it. I am not going to take a theological system and eviscerate other texts of Scripture of any content, any fear, any intensity. I won't do it. I am not a Calvinist. Don't ever call me a Calvinist. I am a Biblicist. And if you accuse me of worshiping Scripture, I will say to you, I do not worship Scripture, but I worship Scripture's God. All right? So, as we come to the point where Paul tries to place you in the pressure cooker between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, and of course they're the same God, between the revelation of the Old Testament and the revelation of the New Testament, of course they do inextricably are bound up together and one points back and the other points forward and they all point to the Word, who is Jesus Christ. All right? If you have anything in you that causes you to despise the God of the Old Testament, to refer to the law as having no further value, to trying to bring people into salvation without leading them first to the tutor who causes them to know their need for Jesus Christ. If that's your inclination, then I say to you, you cannot know Paul himself. In other words, if you want to throw out the Old Testament, if you want to throw out the Gospel of Matthew, and if you want to throw out Luke and John and Acts, but you want to sort of start with Acts, and then you want to hoomph into Paul, okay? Here's the deal. You don't understand Paul. Your problem is that you won't even submit to Paul. Because what does every single book of the Pauline epistles end with? Come on, you know them. You've had them preached to you every single Sunday since you were born. What do all the epistles end with? They all end with what we call ethics. Now, what's that about? Well, ethics is a sophisticated word to use for law. Now, the Apostle Paul might refer to it as the law of Christ, the law of love. But let me tell you, the law of love is infinitely more intense than all the nitpicky things of the Old Testament. Jesus, when he gave us the Sermon on the Mount, was not like lowering, you know, the hurdle for us, the threshold. Jesus said, you've heard it said to you that... Uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, when a man's your enemy, when he resists you, uh, don't resist him. When he slaps you, turn the other cheek. You've heard that it was said to you, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that any man that looks with a woman with lust in his eye has committed adultery. Okay? Well, get rid of Matthew. <laughs> you know, I mean, Jesus was in the transition period. Let's go to Paul. All right? Okay, fine. Let's go to Paul. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, brothers and sisters, I could open to any epistle of Paul and show you this immediately, but I'm going to choose this one because what people will say is this. As you turn, listen to this. The Old Testament is law, the New Testament grace. We live in the dispensation of grace and must restrain. Uh, 
our constant temptation to return to the Old Testament dispensation of law. Out with the old, in with the new. Out with the blood of animals, in with the blood of Jesus Christ. Out with law, in with grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who obeyed the law for us and who is our righteousness. We no longer sacrifice bulls and sheep and pigeons and turtle doves. We no longer burn incense and send the priests into the Holy of Holies. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so these things that pointed forward to Christ are abrogated. They're done away with. The veil in the temple was ripped in two, pointing for all time to the boldness with which all those with faith in Christ may now themselves enter that same throne room of heaven, bringing their prayers and petitions to the Holy God. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So let's read 1 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 6. Now, what's Paul dealing with here? He's dealing with a man who's sleeping with his father's wife in the church. Not literally in the church, but he's a part of the church, and he's having sex with his father's wife. And the Apostle Paul is writing this church. It's a proud church, very sophisticated church, Bloomington Church. All right? And this is what they have going on in their church. And the Apostle Paul is absolutely scandalized that they are allowing this to go on. He says to them, do you have any reason to be proud? Look at how dirty, how filthy you are. And then he says this. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For, now here's, here it is. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. All right, stop. Sounds good, doesn't it? For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. We go, yep, that's grace, and I'm into it. All right? But then what does he say? What is the application of the fact that Jesus Christ has been sacrificed for us? It says, for Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I mean, the immediate application of the grace of Jesus Christ is, therefore, let us be holy. I wrote you, he continues, in my letter, not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. That's the constant failure of the church. The failure of the church is to point the finger at the world, at people who make no claim of being Christians. We talk about Washington. We talk about Walt Disney. We talk about Hollywood. We talk about everything but those in the church. And then we make a claim that in the church it's supposed to be a hospital. And... The implication behind that is that we never ever talk about each other's sins in the church because we all admit we're sinners. We come into the church to be healed and it should not be a place of judgment. And yet the Bible says that the world is not to be a place of judgment, although he does judge the world, don't get me wrong, but that you and I as Christians in the church are to specialize in judgment amongst one another. Now, it's not to be a nasty judgment that goes around saying, you should have ten children or you're not a Christian. You should homeschool your children or you're not a Christian. You should wear a tie on Sunday morning or you're not a Christian. All right? And so, what does he say? He says, I did not at all mean 
with the immoral people of this world, with the covetous and swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But, actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater. Now, what are we dealing with here? Christ has been sacrificed. We're in the dispensation of grace. Therefore, do not associate with anyone in the church who violates the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. And he just goes right through it, brothers and sisters. We're not antinomians. We don't hate God's law. Do not judge those who are within... He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders, verse 12? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove this wicked man from among yourselves. Now, how do they know he's wicked? If they don't line him up and themselves up according to God's law. So apparently, this same Paul is either he has multiple personality disorder, all right, or he's consistent. Either the Holy Spirit speaks out of both sides of his mouth, or the Holy Spirit is wise. Okay? Now, let me end with this plea with you. I know you're frustrated because I've dealt with one thing, which is to show you why the question is at the beginning of our text. Why then the law? And I want to show you that the way many of you answer that question is wrong. Because you answer the question with, to no purpose. It's done. It did its work. It's obsolete. It's abrogated. It's done. All right? And I want to say to you, that's not the whole truth. Now, I'll come back next week and open this up more, but I want to leave you with one question. Let me ask you this. If you really believe that the law of God is done, all right, then let me ask you this. Have you ever heard of the concept that the misuse of a thing does not negate its proper use? I mean, chainsaws have a purpose, right? And they are dangerous. And so we're capable of sophisticated enough thinking to not go out and outlaw chainsaws because many of us remember what it would be like to use a, a, a cross-cut saw, <laughs> right? And having many houses is actually a good thing, despite what some tree huggers think, all right? The abuse of a thing does not make its proper use illegitimate. In other words, you don't, because something can be abused, you don't throw it out, right? Okay? And let me ask you this in the Old Testament, when it points forward to the New Covenant, it talks about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. What does it say about those of us who are in the New Covenant? Come on. What does it say right now? Come on, it's on the tip of your tongue. Just speak it out. Oh, yes. All right, did anybody else hear that? Yell it. I wasn't yelling it, but it's good enough. Here's what it says. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In other words, what characterizes the life of a Christian? The life of a Christian is characterized by repentance. That's the first of the 95 theses. All right? The life of a Christian is characterized by a life of repentance. 
Why? Because God says that in the new covenant, he will do what? I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is a tender statement. And how does that happen? It happens by God doing what? By sending his Holy Spirit to do what? To write his law on our hearts. Now, we'll get into it more, but I just ask you, do you have the law of God written on your heart? Do you love the law of God? Or do you think it no longer has a place? We'll get into this more next week. Let's conclude. I want to point out that we have a poem, and I'd like you to take it out and put it up on your refrigerator where all good literature goes. And I want you to meditate on it. Some of the words are harp, but you have a dictionary and you can look them up. And we'll get back to that poem next week. Let's stand and let's sing our concluding hymn, The Law of God is Good and Wise. <laughs>